Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. Would you please pray with me? May the words in my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A true confession moment. Most of the time, I have no idea what I'm doing. No idea what I'm doing. I can put in hours of preparation. I can get down on my knees in prayer. But being a pastor is kind of like just walking around a room in darkness, stumbling and fumbling, looking for the door out. This was uh, more evident than any other moment in my ministry than for the first wedding I ever had to do. See, I arrived at my first church, and I was there for maybe a day before I found a note from the pastor before me that said, you have to marry this couple in two months. If you marry this couple in two months, I've never met these people before. I don't know what they look like. I don't know who they are. And one of the things they don't teach you in seminary is how to do a wedding. So I reached out and I said, hey, um, I'm kind of making this up as I go, but maybe we should get together. Maybe we should get to know each other before. I don't know. I'm the one that's supposed to make you married to each other. And so I did my due diligence. We met a number of times. We went through the premarital counseling that I made up on the spot. We even ran through the, uh, the service. We had a rehearsal and everything went well. And then the day of the wedding came. And I was standing back in the narthex with all of the groom, the grooms and the groomsmen, because I had heard that, you know, one of the expectations about weddings is that the groom is not supposed to see the bride until that perfect moment when the doors are open. Everyone stands up and everyone turns and looks at the bride and the photographer takes that great picture of the groom crying when he sees his bride and wife for the first time. So I sequestered the women. I put them in the furthest Sunday school room away from the sanctuary. I said, you all wait there until I come get you. So I was down in the narthex. I was talking with the groomsmen and the groom. I said, hey, we should get the show on the road. I'm going to go check on the girls and then we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna do this thing, okay? I'll be right back. So I go to the other side of the church, I find the girls walking around here, laughing, giggling. I said, oh, are y'all ready? They said, oh, Pastor, we need about five more minutes. We just finish the makeup. And I said, okay, that's fine. So I walked back to the narthex, and the groomsmen were gone. <laughs> and like, when I mean gone, like, there's no sight of them. I'm, I'm looking for them. I can't find them. Look at the other bathrooms. They're nowhere to be found. I'm looking. I cannot find the groomsmen. And I think, I've heard about wives that don't show up, but what about the groom? I just saw him. The last place I thought to look was at the altar. Because they had already waited, gone down and were waiting for the bride. And not only are they standing there staring at the back, but every person in the sanctuary is staring at the doors waiting for the bride. Now, I know five minutes doesn't sound like a long time. You know, five minutes is a blink and you miss it. But five minutes waiting for a bride feels like eternity. So I'm standing back there, and I'm trying to figure out what to do, because I know the girls are going to take not five minutes, probably like ten minutes. So I'm standing back there, and I'm running through my head all the things I can do, and I think, oh, you know what I should do? I should make it look like this is all part of the plan. And I started walking as slowly as I possibly could, <laughs> without looking like there was something wrong with me, you know? And I got about halfway, and I paused, and I did the sign of the cross. And I knelt down on the ground, and I said, Lord, make them hurry up. <laughs> and I did it again and again and again and again. When I got up to the altar, I looked back over my shoulder, still no girls. So I fell down and I said, Lord, please make them come. Please. 
inspired them to come to this place to get married. And I could hear the high heels behind the altar in the hallway. Which, thing started. And so I'm standing up there and the first bridesmaid comes into the doorway and I think, oh, hallelujah. And she stands there and she's holding her bouquet and everyone in the room is staring at her and she froze. And I kind of did this. Because everyone's looking at her, nobody's looking at me and she just stared and did nothing. So I kind of was like, come on. Nothing. No movement, no reaction. And I finally said, the first bridesmaid will now enter the sanctuary. <laughs> and she walked even slower than I did. I mean, the poor piano player was running out of music. His fingers were cramping up. It took 20 minutes to get all the bridesmaids down. And finally, the bride and the father of the bride are in the back. And everyone stands up. And everyone's so happy. They're just, they're all just so happy this is finally going to happen, you know? And the bride and the father, they come down. They stop right where I told them to. Ah, today we're going to bring these two together in holy matrimony, and so on and so forth. And I said what countless pastors have said before. I looked right at the father and the bride, and I said, Who gives this woman to be married to this man? And he forgot what to say. <laughs> and so I thought, maybe if I ask this question a second time, maybe he'll remember who he is. Who gives this woman to be married to this man? And he just stared at me. He could not compose a word out of his mouth. And I said, you do, let's, come on. <laughs> it was the longest hour of my life. You know, we, we bring expectations with us to things like that. The bride isn't supposed to see the groom. The groom isn't supposed to see the bride. The bride needs to wear white. The groom needs to wear a tux. I mean, I promise there ain't no scripture about that. But we do these things. We do these things. And even if we haven't been to a lot of weddings or a lot of funerals or even a lot of baptisms, we kind of know what they're supposed to look like, you know, because we've seen them in the movies. We have this idea about what they're supposed to be because of how it's portrayed somewhere else and not necessarily how it's portrayed in our life. So many of us can remember, you know, any number of rom-coms when the bride is standing at the front with the groom and the minister says something like, if anyone here should see why these two should not be lawfully joined together, speak now or forever hold your peace. And at that moment, the young man, pining for the love of his life, he enters in and stops the wedding right the last moment. And that's like every rom-com I can think about. When you think about a, a funeral scene, you know, everyone's gathered together at the grave. Everyone's wearing black from head to toe. It's always raining. And they stay and they wait until the grave is, or to the the. the body is lowered into the ground. Or when we think about baptisms, we think about the Corleone family and the Godfather, all together at the Catholic Church with the priest, waiting for the son to be, to be baptized in the Godfather. You know, I've done a lot of weddings, done a lot of funerals, I've done a lot of baptisms. I've never even said, speak now or forever hold your peace, let alone has anybody rushed in at the last second to stop a wedding. I've buried a lot of people in the ground, and nobody wears all black. And if it's raining, we're going to wait until it stops raining. And to my knowledge, no mafia massacre has happened when I've done a baptism. <laughs> to my knowledge, yes. Exactly. I want to protect myself. But that's what we think weddings and funerals and baptisms are supposed to be. Not because that's what they are, but it's because that's what we think they're supposed to be. 
It's what we've seen on television or in the movies. They keep us on the edge of our seats. And the way that we bring our expectation to those moments is the same thing we do with Scripture. We bring our expectations to Scripture, particularly the one that Leo read for us. More than just about any other text from the Bible, I probably didn't even need to have him read it. If I just said 1 Corinthians 13, you would immediately think of white dresses. You think about black tuxedos. If I say love is patient, love is kind, can you smell the flowers? Can you hear the little footsteps of the ring bearer nervously pacing back and forth before he walks down the aisle? We have expectations, and these things are so familiar to us. We think we know what they mean. We think we know them so well that they couldn't mean anything else, and their familiarity is part of their problem. I've done a lot of weddings, and I really only have one rule. I will preach on any text from the Bible at a wedding, any text but I refuse to preach about this one. I will not preach 1 Corinthians 13 that way. I refuse to talk about love being patient and kind and not boasting or being rude. Because love, love ain't enough. Love isn't enough in marriage. Love, whatever it may be, is not nearly enough to sustain two people through the crucible that marriage can be. It's not enough. When we're stripped away all of our defenses and our disguises, love doesn't help us when all of our imperfections and our insecurities are laid bare for another person to see. So instead, I won't preach about love. I'll preach about how hard marriage is. Not because I like to make people uncomfortable, though I kind of do a little bit. It's because I don't want any couple entering marriage thinking it's easier than it is. The other reason I refuse to preach on this text, much to the chagrin of a lot of couples, is that it doesn't really have anything to do with marriage. It doesn't even really have anything to do with how we feel about other people. 1 Corinthians 13 isn't about us. It's about how God feels about us. In the Corinthian church, they were horrible. They refused to share in common the things that are supposed to be normal in a church. They had individuals who refused to eat with others because they were poor or because they were foreigners or because they were outcasts or they were marginalized. They wouldn't have communion with each other on Sundays because they thought some of them were more important than others. The difficulties, the divisions within the body of Christ were apparently too difficult to overcome to the point that they couldn't even eat together. The church, since its earliest gatherings, has been full of differing opinions Different theologies and programs and institutions and ministries and missions. And for most of the time, there's enough room. There's enough room for the differences. But tensions always arise. It happened in Corinth. It's happening in the United Methodist Church right now. And I promise it's going to happen in the future. We fight about things. We fight about space or time or money. We do it in our marriages. We do it in our churches. We do it in our communities. We fight about things all the time. And it leads to these kind of divisions that have haunted the church for centuries. We've got social and cultural concerns. And they press in upon the church. And they lead some to insist that it's either my way or no way. Which completely ignores the fact that Jesus is the way. When these things happen... Christians have this incredible and horrible power of masking our self-interest with self-righteousness. We say, hey, I'm right, you're wrong, and the church ain't big enough for the both of us. So I'm going to stay, and you've got to leave. We do it over and over and over again. And the infighting, 
whether it's in Corinth or now or somewhere in the future, we Christians forget that there are far more important things than being right or being powerful. Because when we think we've gained it all by standing on principle or by dominating others or simply by being right, we have already lost everything. If we want to be faithful, if we want to follow Jesus as the way rather than believing we know the way, then this text, it has a sting that doesn't when we read it at weddings. Because the passion, the passion of love and intimacy that we might give for those who exchange rings implies a willingness not just to know someone deeply, but to be known by someone deeply. And that's what it's like for us with God. This text about love isn't about our love for each other or even about our love for God, but God's love for us. God is the love of a mirror that holds itself up to us to reveal to us the stranger we are to ourselves. God's love is like looking in our yearbook from the past and discovering who we were, maybe who we still are. The hardest thing about this text and the way that it's used is that we think we're capable of the kind of love that Paul describes, and I promise you we're not. I know, you all, you all might be perfect, but I'm not. I'm not patient. I'm not kind. I'm not free of envy or of boasting. Not with my friends, not with my family, not with my spouse, not even with you, my church. The sentimentality of a patient and kindly love that we express at weddings ignores the toughness and the resiliency and the long-sufferingness of God's love for us. We come across a text like this, whether it's during a wedding or on a Sunday morning, it's always whittled down to something more we have to do. You've just got to love each other. Have you tried loving each other? It hasn't really worked out for the church. Oh, just be a little more kind. Just be a little more nice. Just be a little more patient. It doesn't work. We can't, we're not capable sinners. All of us. In the Bible, we call this the law. And the law is always a list of you must do this or you must not do this. And it shows up in our lives, not just in church all the time, with the shoulds and the musts and the oughts. And we constantly hear them in the back of our minds. Just like with the expectations we bring to the Bible, when we encounter this call to love, as nice as it might sound, it doesn't respond or result in us feeling joyful and giddy about loving each other. Instead, it bears down upon us like the weight of the world. Love each other? We don't. And we can't. The law and the call to love, it shines this painful light on all of our failures, and all of our fractures, all of our fears. And so we can read this passage about love. We can think about how we should love more, but the result is we just feel terrible about ourselves. We just feel like we're not good enough. But, and with Paul, it's always a big but. Paul's talk about love isn't meant to be the law. It's not supposed to be a call about how you need to go and love people more than you do right now. That's not what these 13 verses are about. It's not meant to be used as a club that we swing around at other people for not loving me or us enough. It's supposed to be the opposite of the law. It's supposed to be the gospel. A friend of mine wrote this week, it's the law that says be loving, but the gospel says you are loved. There's a big difference between be loving and you are loved. 
Because this often used marriage scripture, it's not about what we do or even how we treat each other. It's about how Jesus does what we cannot. We say that God is love. And if God is love, then Jesus is love too. So Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Jesus rejoices in the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus never ends. So we can go. We can love the people around us. We can try to even love the people we hate. The world could certainly use a little more love right now. But there is a big difference between be loved and be loved. The former is the law, and the latter is the gospel. I offer this to you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Amen. Amen.